description, really, on an analogy or allegory of God's people with this baby that uh, God came along and took care of, and then she became a beautiful woman, and, and God took care of her and married her, more or less, and then she uh, became a prostitute. She took the blessings God had given her and used them to hire lovers. And that's where we were. Um, so we're looking basically at Ezekiel 16.23. I think in many ways the lovers that he's looking at in these verses we've looked at already are the idols. He talks about how they sacrifice their children even to the idols and so forth. And that's one way that people uh, are unfaithful. They betray their marriage covenant with God. They um, put their love onto other gods. They have other uh, allegiances and so forth. In, in the uh, case of Israel, there was, there was another direction they went. There was a betrayal of God, and that's what we're going to see in the next section. So would somebody read 23 to 34? Then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty and abomin and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold now, I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. And I deliver and I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians, because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them, and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, yet even with this you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give, men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different from those women, women in your harlotries and that no one plays the harlot as you do, because you give money, and no money is given you. Thus you are different. Okay. In this uh, area of betrayal and harlotry, uh, she, it wasn't so much that uh, Israel was following after other gods, but was doing what? Intermarrying. Just intermarrying, but going, forming alliances. Yeah, going after other nations, in a sense. Precisely. The political betrayal of God, making covenants with other nations instead of with the Lord. And he pictures her as this just unbelievable uh, prostitute. Um, for several reasons, what she did was pretty incredible. You look, for example, at verse 25, and uh, what do you see that's rather extreme in her harlotry? She was available to every passerby. Absolutely. <laughs> Knew no limits. She had no minimum standards. You know, any and everyone she uh, solicited. Uh, you know, I don't know, I've talked a lot to prostitutes, but I, I assume maybe they even would have their limits in some senses, but she had none. 
Um, and what, who were some of the particular uh, lovers that she courted? Egyptians. Egypt and... Uh, no, I think the Philistines are, you know, those that were ashamed of her lewd conduct. I don't think he's saying they made the alliance with them. The Assyrians and the Chaldeans, who would be also known as the Babylonians. Yeah, exactly. And so she had had affairs with an, a succession of, of world powers. And uh, the idea is she saw these nations as being uh, more security for her than what the Lord was. And so she would form these covenants with them, feeling like she could trust them more than she could trust the Lord. Some of this is, is pretty gross. Uh, I think the point in verse 26, where it's euphemistically translated your lustful neighbors, is really your neighbors with the large male organs. I think that's the idea. And, you know, just using very gross terminology to describe her gross behavior. This is the way God looked at it when she went after these other nations. And you wonder how God looks at us when we turn to others instead of the Lord, or other things instead of the Lord to provide our security, to to protect us, and, and to give our allegiance to. You know, and so, you know, our the thing we most care about is this and that and the other thing, and not the Lord. You know, the Lord would probably describe it in terms similar to this, even though we wouldn't have looked at it that way. And uh, there's another element of just real shocking element about the nature of her harlotry. He keeps emphasizing she's different than most of the prostitutes you see. In what way? She could <laughs> Yeah. Normally you prostitute your body for, for money. You know, the guy pays you. <laughs> she paid the guys to come into her. You know, she would send her stuff off to Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or wherever to make this alliance. So she paid the lovers instead of them paying her. She's a disgrace to the, you know, pro prostitute profession. <laughs> you know, she just had no self-respect. But that's the way Israel was. I mean, they would go after every other nation, every other idol, whatever. And they had the Lord that they were married to. And just totally disregarded this marriage covenant. You can understand why God was not especially happy with it. What questions or comments do you have? Does verse 32 suggest that she had no relationship with God then? You take strangers instead of your husband. Or would it be like in addition to? Well, I imagine the Lord saw it as being, you know, you're not, you're not really taking me because you are taking these strangers. I mean, she wasn't really turning to the Lord. She was really turning to the other nations. But God was withholding from her too. Absolutely. So, there wasn't the relationship that there should have been if she was faithful. Good point. You just wonder, you just think about our sins, and if the Lord were describing them, I wonder how they look. And I wonder what terms he would use. 
Because the people obviously did not talk in these terms about what they were doing with the idols and the nations. They wouldn't have described it in such gross, disgusting, despicable terms. If we could only get God's perspective on the things we do. You know, this is just, there's a whole different uh, slant on the, the, the stuff that God sees as outrageous behavior. It looks like in verse 30, it talks about how languishing is your heart, which makes me think of that while this is going on, that she is in the process of, of killing herself. I mean, I think of, you know, you're languishing for lack of food or, or something, and you're nearing the point of death, and what you're doing is causing that. So, I mean, that seems to be part of the, the message that you're doing this stuff and it's never going to satisfy you and your heart is dying within you while you're doing it. So, No doubt about it. You know, this was not the right move at all. It was self-destructive and it was bringing the wrath of God upon her. I mean, you know, always remember everything God says is what's best for us. And every time we don't do it, it's going to hurt us. You know, we can just count on it. God's a loving Father, and He knows everything. So you will never, ever defy what He says, and it'd be better. It's always worse. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Verse 34. Just looking at the, the not satisfied, that repeated phrase, she wasn't satisfied after going here or here or here. But one would assume that if she would have been faithful to her husband, to God, she would be satisfied. I suspect we're going to see that somewhere, or maybe we already have and I've already forgotten. Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly right. Is it because she's looking for the wrong thing? She's looking in things that will never satisfy you. You know, and it's the way the world always is. It's Ecclesiastes. You know, it's just chasing the wind. You never get it. It never does fill you up. And it never will. And it doesn't make a difference how many nations there are, she's not going to be satisfied. Nothing will satisfy us except the Lord. I mean, it's like Augustine said that, that we have a God-shaped void in, in our soul. And, you know, we're always hungry until the Lord fills it. I mean, there's nothing else that's going to fill that void. There's nothing else that will satisfy us. And then we can, we can deceive ourselves into thinking, if I just had another video game, if I just had another movie, if I just had another, you know, million dollars, or thousand dollars, or hundred dollars, or whatever, if I just had a higher position, if I just had another girl, you know, if I had just had another, you know, uh, smoke, or, or whatever. You know, we always think, if I just had another fun activity, if I just had another friend, you know, no, none of those things will ever really fill me up. They don't satisfy. You know, it's like drinking salt water. It just makes you thirstier. Other comments, folks? Um, this makes me so think of what Solomon was doing, where he, uh, they sort of started out more with God, but then he had a bunch of wives that drove him away, and he also like made a bunch of alliances with other nations. And it looked like he had a, this really great nation, but in God's eyes, he was evil. That's right. Yes. And, and isn't, it wasn't ultimately satisfying even to him. That's a good point. Other thoughts? 
Let's look at the next step, 35 to 43. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I shall gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you love and all those whom you hated. So I shall gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I shall judge you like... Women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I shall bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I shall also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords, and they will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on, on you in the sight of many women. Then I shall stop you from playing the harlot, and you shall also no longer play, pay your lovers. So I shall calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I shall be pacified and angry no more, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. This is God's word. Look at 35 and then right around 36. You hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord God, because of your harlotry, your lewdness, because of how you behaved, or misbehaved, we should say, what was God going to do? Give her punishment that was deserving. Absolutely. Give her over to all of her lovers who will then attack her and stone her. Isn't this ironic? You know, she'd been gathering all these lovers to her for these, you know, uh, uh, encounters, and now God's going to g gather these lovers to her, except now who are they? Exactly. They hate her. They, they come against her. Isn't that the way that goes, even in literal terms? You know, you remember how Amnon, after he raped Tamar, hated her more than he'd even loved her. And, and there's no real love in sin, you know, and among people who are away from God. You know, it's more or less always self-focused and sort of exploitive. And so there's no real security in it. Because it's not true love. And so he brings these people on her, and what are they going to do? Destroy her. And what's God going to, how's God going to shame her? Naked before them. Now, isn't that rather interesting? Because what had she been doing? Yeah. She'd been spreading her legs out and showing her body off and so forth. And so it's sort of like if she wants exposure, God's going to give it to her. Except this is a disgraceful exposure. God provides her with all she wants and more. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they disgrace her. They dishonor her. They, you know, destroy her and they take away her, her stuff and they tear down her shrines and her high places. And they bring others against her with uh, stones and swords and all that sort of thing. Um, and so she ends up being how in the end of verse 39? 
Exactly. Remember how she began way back yonder? How was she? Yeah, helpless, squirming in her blood as a baby, naked and, and untaken care of. That's the way she ends up. God's going to, you know, put her back the way he found her. Because she has not responded properly to all that he had done for her. And she's going to enter into a, a torment that's of her own making. You know, she's, she's made this bed and she's going to have to lie in it. And uh, so it's just really, really sad, you know, what she's done after all the, the promise and opportunity. And she ends up like this. Comments and questions? In verse 38, it talks about, I will judge you like women who commit adultery. So that would be the stoning, as much as anything. Yeah, isn't You know better than I do. I was going to say, I seem to recall there was a, you know, a test for an unfaithful wife, and you had to drink a That's water. That's not a test for the unfaithful wife. You have to drink this water and you may swell up or not or something. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Yeah, that's, that's what I remember. <laughs> yeah, well, there was the one time when they brought the adulteress to Jesus and that's what they wanted to do with Stoner. So. But if they caught her in the very act, why didn't they bring them in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I guess to... Detail. Detail. <laughs> it's 20. It's 20. Oh, yeah. Good 20 for 10. you, man. 2010, yes. I'm so good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My reference was right there. <laughs> I didn't look at the reference. Ah, wow. Leviticus? 20. Leviticus 2010? Yeah. What you, what you need to do is buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. Yeah, yeah, you make it work. Well, in the same class, I know that there's several things in the Bible, but you can't find them. That's right. It's in there somewhere. Somewhere. But it doesn't say anything about stones. It says they were killed. But, yeah, it doesn't say anything about stones. But punish them, I mean, according to the way an adulterer. And the adulterer was killed. Stoning it wasn't stoning like you know execution of choice. <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't have been mine, but it probably was theirs. <laughs> yeah, there, there may be something elsewhere about stoning. I think they probably were here. I'm not sure. Other thoughts and comments to forty-three. It's it's interesting that I mean she's gonna. This will stop her from playing the harlot. And I'm kind of like, so how will that work? Because she's back to being helpless again? Nobody's going to want her? Yeah, I think maybe all of that. I mean, she's going to be basically destroyed and, and cured of this. I mean, you know, think about uh, Judah in captivity. And what kind of, kind of alliances could she make with any nation there? No, she's sort of pathetic. And actually, I mean, as we've said before, I think the captivity cured her of her idolatry. 
far as we know, Judah never went back to it. Evidently, the parental units are discussing it. He's trying to find out if his pants will wear. who dwells to the south of you is Sodom and her daughters. You do not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations. But as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the inquiry of your iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. 
and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. You who judge your sisters bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yea, yes, be disgraced also, and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. Whoa. These are some bad things that he's comparing to. Isn't he, though? He's sort of uh, outlining Judah's family tree. And uh, what's he saying about it? You're the worst one of them. You're the run of the litter, the worst of the litter. And and who are her sisters? Samaria and Sodom. Samaria and Sodom. Now, Samaria would refer to who? Syria? Uh-uh, Israel, the capital city of Israel, so Samaria was Israel. And uh, they had long ago gone into Assyrian captivity because they were so wicked. And Sodom, you remember Sodom? Well, when did we read about Sodom? A long time ago. Yeah. Genesis. Genesis. 18. Good for you. 18 and 19. I was going to say 17. What's 17? Well, it's right before Sodom. I know. It's right before. I was going to say 17. Well, you're going to be wrong. I was going to say 17. I know, because you didn't know. You're confused. What's 17? Well, look it up. You have a Bible. So he compares them to Sodom and Samaria. You know, putting them on the same family tree, but then saying, well, you're worse than they were. I mean, Samaria was bad, but Sodom? Sodom is just the uh, most uh, most despicable, the most abominable nation there ever was. And uh, did you notice something about this that I think is interesting? We uh, mostly know Sodom because of its association with sodomy, homosexuality. But... Look at 49 and 50. We find out some more things about Sodom. Now, on her only sin, what does he condemn Sodom for here? Pride, gluttony, idleness, not helping the poor, needy, arrogance. Would you think that would be all that bad? Uh, We see a lot of it now. Don't we, though? You know, I mean, we hear about somebody who's uh, arrogant, has abundant food, careless ease, doesn't help the poor and needy? Well, uh, <laughs> you know anybody that fits? God punished Sodom because of those things. I mean, you know, we would think, you know, what, what we think of Sodom for, well, that's horrible, that's terrible. Well, God doesn't even bother to mention those sins of Sodom here. He's thinking about these so serious sins of Sodom for which he punished them. So that's kind of a shock to us. And really, it's almost like he's saying if God didn't punish Judah, he'd have to apologize to Sodom and Samaria for his judgment of them. <laughs> you know, it's bad when you make them look good. <laughs> that's about, shoot, that's bad. Comments and questions? Because they were so bad, it says that they justified their sisters. That doesn't mean, I mean, it just means that it made them look 
they were making them look good. They weren't really justified. That's correct, and that's my translation, in fact, in the end of verse uh, 52, you know, in that you made your sisters appear righteous. I think that is the idea. Okay. You make them look good. It's not, that, uh, it's not that, well, I'm doing better than they are, so I must be doing okay. Right. All right. I thought so, but that would be sure. Yeah. Last verse. Mm-hmm. Other comments? Questions? Why does it say, like, mother, like, daughter? Who is their mother? And why do they keep being Well, mother? their mother was a Hittite. Your mama was a Hittite. mama. Your mama. And your daughter. So that's, I think, who he's talking about. But it's just a... They were like Hittites and the Hittites and the Amorites were exactly. But they have seen that as an insult. Yeah. And they, 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 I mean, they that, that would have mattered too. Those weren't the nations that they'd driven out of the land, you know, because they were so bad and all that. So yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's not a really flattering picture. I mean, so like when Hannah hears me, you look just like your mom. <laughs> <laughs> That helps her. She doesn't agree with that. She's somewhat like you, but not much. <laughs> there is resemblance, though. Huh? Well, oh, well. Not great. That's off the subject, but I know it, it kind of disgusts her. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think this would have been disgusting to them, and even worse, what he deals on with more, that she's a sister to Samaria and to Sodom, and she's worse. <laughs> you know, wow, that's bad. That's a serious sibling rivalry. That's right. This is a lousy family. (laughs) It's sort of the the spiritual family tree here. This makes us wonder why God chose this family. Yeah. Chose Sodom and Samaria. Maybe he didn't exactly choose Sodom, but yeah. I mean, yeah. But other people that that were related to them, I guess, you want to put it that way. That he puts in the same family tree, like the Hittites and the Amorites. And I think it's a fact that Sodom's in the same family tree because of the similarity of behavior. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just saying that uh, that's the type of family that God tried to turn around and check. Yes. God never wanted them to be family, but they chose it. Exactly. Yeah. Petition for adoption. Who would be part of your family? Yeah. Just like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even worse. Yeah. I suppose one one aspect of choosing people who are really, really bad and then making them into something worthwhile is just like another expression of grace and power, etc. Definitely. See, Paul. (laughs) You could also kind of look at this as, you know, choosing the companions that you choose and you will be the worst for it because you were pure to begin with. And, you know, you're one of God's children, you choose worldly friends, you're under their influence. You're going to be worse in the end than they are. Mm-hmm. That's often the case. Other comments? All right, 53 to 58. Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them 
your own captivity, in order that you may bear your bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you have become a consolation to them. Your sisters, Sodom with her daughters, and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state, and you with your daughters will also return to your former state. As the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in your day of pride, before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Edom and of all who are around her, of the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, the Lord declares. For this says the Lord God. Oh, it 58. Mm-hmm. So, this is kind of bizarre. What does God say he's going to do? <laughs> that you wouldn't have expected him to do? Can you restore the captivity of Sodom and Samaria? Yeah, I'm going to bring Sodom and Samaria back from their captivity along with you from your captivity. Now, how would Judah feel about that? Don't bring back those evil people. Exactly. Yes. You know, it's it's they they wouldn't even speak the name of Sodom. You know, they, they were so abominable to them they wouldn't even say the word. And now God's saying, "Well, I'm going to bring them back with you." Uh, now, you know, it's like, well, what can they say? You know, it's kind of like the passengers on the Titanic arguing about who they would be prepared to share a lifeboat with. I mean, you know, that's really not appropriate. You know, you, you get a lifeboat, you're doing well. You know, you don't get to select who you go with. Um, but it, it's trying to shame Jerusalem. And it's saying, you know, you think you're so much better than they are. You've actually put them in a good light. And I, to be fair, I've got to bring them back. Now, he's not saying literally that he's going to bring Sodom and Samaria back. I mean, you know, Jude... Seven, if you want to deal with Sodom in literal terms, says that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So literally, Sodom was eternally destroyed. But symbolically, he's saying, you are so much worse than they are, I'm going to bring them back too, so to speak. I'm going to, I'm going to shame you by showing that I really, by rights, they ought to be brought back as well. You know, really, it's not Sodom who's the byword for evil anymore. It's you, Jerusalem. This is, this is stuff you wouldn't expect. You know, this is Ezekiel becoming totally outrageous. You know, saying, you guys, I, you know, God's going to have to restore Sodom if he's going to bring you back. Comments and questions. Also shows an Amos where uh, they were uh, showing how evil they were. The result, Amos is showing uh, all the nations he's going to take away, and he's also going to take away them because they were evil. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. They're they're fit in the same category. They need the same judgment. Other thoughts. What does verse fifty-six mean? I don't. No, if I read this very good. It says, Your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride. 
In other words, they wouldn't even say her name. Okay. Like the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in your day of pride. Which is the same thing. I mean, Sodom's a byword, and you wouldn't even utter it. How much more so are you? Yeah, yeah. You know, they wouldn't even wouldn't even say the word Sodom. They were so they thought they were so despicable. Okay. And now they've become despicable in the eyes of Edom and the Philistines. Yeah. yeah. They're not all that great. Last time I checked, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, we'd say, you know, you're you're an Iraqi or something. Or you're, a, you're a Nazi or, you know, something that way. It, it seems just totally horrible. The Nazis think you're evil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 Hitler be embarrassed by you. That's good. <laughs> Now you see what this sounded like. Yeah. Hitler says, you are way out of my league. I ain't got nothing to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, 59 to 63. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done. You have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting, an everlasting covenant with you. And then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that you may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth any more because of your humiliation, which I have forgiven when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. So, they've broken the covenant, but what was God going to do? Make a new one. Make a new one, an everlasting covenant with them. And how would they feel? Ashamed. Ashamed when they thought about all that they had done, and all that God had forgiven. Um... So this just shows the amazing grace of God. After all of this, just despicable, repugnant, repulsive, horrendous stuff that Judah was doing, running around on, on the Lord, God would ultimately bring them back in an everlasting covenant and bless them. And, and it would have the effect that they would, they would be ashamed. They would, they would never forget all that they had done that the Lord had forgiven. It's such an important response to God's grace. A justified sinner should never forget that he has a past to be ashamed of. You know, we we must not allow God's grace and mercy to somehow lift us up with pride, but to humble us and make us really stop and reflect on, you you know, how horrible we were when God rescued us. Comments and questions. How does he give Sodom and Samaria to her as daughters? I have an idea, but I'm not sure about it. I don't know that I have a good idea. I think they are blessed with, with you know, other wicked people turning back to the Lord. And they have them, you know, with them. You, you, you see almost in the prophets the priority given to the Jews and then the others from the surrounding nations being brought uh, to, 
join with them, share with them the blessings of God. I don't know, is that your idea? Yeah, sort of. I was thinking, you know, like, the, how the Gentiles would participate in the the New Testament covenant. Sure. That kind of idea that yes, won't be this, this particular covenant that we're talking about that will result in your blessing, but they also will be part of this new ashamed, repentant family. Stacy, when we talked about how their sisters, when he, he received that, that, talking about, I mean, as he made their sisters be like the nations around them, the pagan nations, he's going to even bring those into his covenant, to his family, the final covenant. I mean, with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, their sisters, Samaria and Sodom. Yeah. But it would be a sign of these, you know, wicked people being brought to the Lord. As they themselves were wicked and brought to the Lord. That's a long chapter. <laughs> Somewhere or other, I did a, uh, what did I do with all my papers? There's a, um, this is not original, but this is kind of cool. In just summarizing this. 1 to 14 is the orphan becomes a queen. 15 to 34, the queen becomes a harlot. 35 to 43, the harlot becomes a convict. 44 to 52, the convict becomes a proverb. And then 53 to 58, the convict and her companions. And then 59 to 63, the convict is saved and restored. So that kind of, you know, there's other ways to say that, but I thought that was decent. All right, anything you want to say about Ezekiel 16? Orphan, queen, harlot, convict, proverb, companions, restored. Yeah, very good. Wow. (laughs) Cool. You've got a good memory. (laughs) Occasionally. (laughs) But I do forget to take out my trash on a regular basis. (laughs) (laughs) So did you. I know. Your brother did. He did. Joshua. Okay. I always take the trash on Sunday nights. It's the same day and after. And I forgot. <laughs> Alright, anything else on Ezekiel 16? Alright, Ezekiel 17 is cool. Much briefer. And uh, somewhat cryptic, but very interesting. I, I do like this chapter, but we'll have to, to, to think about it a while, and we may still struggle with it to some extent. Um, and this is one thing, this, where you've got the parable, and then you've got the interpretation of it. And I, I actually, I think it may be difficult for us to study uh, a whole lot of the parable without the interpretation. But let's try it. We'll see if we can see the parable, at least see the picture. And then we'll move on to the interpretation and try to put it all together. So chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose the riddle, and speak a parable to the house of Israel, and say, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon, and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig, and carried it to the land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land, and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters, and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. 
its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him, and stretched its branches toward him, from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters, to bring forth branches, bear fruits, and become a majestic vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, Will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. Alright, so we need to try to see the picture, at least at this point. What do you see in this parable? A very big bird. Yes, a great eagle. And what does the eagle do? Flies and takes off the upper north part of the cedar tree. And... Yes. Takes the top of the cedar and plucks it off and takes it where? To a place of trade. Yes, to a land of merchants, a city of traders. And then what's the second thing that this great eagle does? Some ground, some soil. Yes, and does what in the soil? Yeah, get some seed and puts it in fertile soil. In fact, in a very good place. Fertile soil, well watered. And this seed that this eagle plants becomes what? Vine. Yeah, I have the word willow. Well, they said it like a willow and then it became a low spreading vine. Okay, so kind of think about like... Uh, uh, mm -hmm. The end of five. Thanks for coming. Come on Friday night to sing. Oh, okay. Uh, we're, we're going, going to, Tennessee. to Tennessee Friday. Alright. Oh. So so he puts this seed and it becomes like a willow and like a vine. Now when you think about a willow, what do you think of? What's a willow tree like? Flexible. It swings. Yeah, and it has these droopy. Yeah, it's got a droopy. Yeah, it's got a droopy tree. They're called pee -pee Yeah, they are. They kind of. Mm. And this 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 vine. What was it like? Low and spreading. Low and spreading. Lush but low. All right. So that's what we see. This this first eagle takes the top of the cedar and plants it somewhere else, and then plants a seed and and makes a, a willow, a low spreading vine. And then then what do we see? Another big bird. Yeah, another big, great bird with much plumage. And what does this bird do? It looks like he just stands there and the vine likes him. I think that's about <laughs> it. That's <laughs> what I see too. He doesn't really do anything particular, but the vine does what? Yes, yeah, sends its roots and its branches toward him. 
you know, kind of uh, reminds you of how, how plants will do depending on, like, sunlight and so forth. They'll grow toward the sun. So they're kind of funny sometimes, depending on how it's shaded and the sun is and so forth. You know, and so this, you know, sends everything toward this second eagle. And, uh, well, it, first eagle would put it in a good place to bear fruit and be lush and so forth. So what's going to happen to this plant once it's sort of attracted to the second eagle? It's going to be plucked up. Yeah, it's going to be plucked up and, and uh, you know, be withered, destroyed. So what does that, you know, it doesn't sound like it was a very good move on the plant's part to, uh, you know, turn toward that second eagle. Should have been content with the first eagle. Be, should be content with willowhood and low spreading vineness. Is this so, still the same plant? I think it's the same plant. Because in verse 7 it talks about the garden terrace where it had been planted and that doesn't sound like the same one in verse 5. It was planted in a fertile field by abundant waters. Um, well, I think it is. Um... Mine in fives had planted it in fertile soil beside abundant waters. Yeah, and in seven, what we've got is to uh, send out its branches toward him from the beds where it was planted that he might water it. So, who knows? Yeah. But I still think it's the same one. I think that. Well, yours does make it sound the same one. This one really does. I understand. I think it is. And I definitely think from the interpretation it is. Sometimes you have to know the rest of the story before you know how you're supposed to take some of this stuff anyway. Alright, why don't we get the rest of the story? I'd really like to get the explanation because it's hard to say much more about this before we actually know what it's all about. So, 11 to 21. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Say, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took the king and princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping his covenant, that it might continue. But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many troops. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in the war, when they cast up ramps and build siege walls to cut off many lives. <clears throat> now he despised the oath <clears throat> by breaking the covenant, and behold, he pledged his allegiance. Yet did not all these things, he shall not escape. <clears throat> Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will inflict on his head, and I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. Then I will bring him to Babylon, and enter into judgment with him there, regarding the unfaithful act which he has committed against me. All the choice men and all his troops will fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered to every wind, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Oh, no one's ever gotten choked up in chapter 17. That guy swallowed wrong. Alright, so we start figuring out what's going on here. 
Um, this first eagle was what? Babylon. Babylon. And when Babylon took that uppermost part of the cedar and planted it in the city of merchants, what did that represent? Took the king and princes. To? To Babylon. Now, wonder who that was. The previous king and all the, and all the princes, if you want to call them, like all the young men. Who was that previous king? Uh, Jack and Raya. Yes. yes. What was his other name? Jehoiachin. Yes. Jehoiachin. Yes. is Jehoiachin. Yes, that's the same person. You just lucky that. Because we Chin. Chin. Yes, this is Chin. Because he was the second to the last king. He reigned for three months, and Babylon came in and took him and Ezekiel and others into captivity. What also when, when when it says that the eagle then planted some of the seed in good soil, what did that represent? Put another king in charge. And who was that? Puppet king. Zedekiah. Zedekiah, yes. Certainly. So verse thirteen, he took one of the royal family, made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, and uh so, so he he sworn Zedekiah to allegiance to him as sort of a vassal king, and uh, notice he took away the mighty of the land. The kingdom might not, but the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping its covenant that it might continue. The idea was Babylon did everything to ensure uh, Judah's well-being, but that it would remain lowly and not important, took away the, the better people and so forth, because, you know, really, that's what Babylon intended, that Judah would continue sort of lowly and stooping, but thriving. That was, that was fine. Babylon was, was certainly more than willing for the nation of, nation of Judah to thrive as long as it stayed lowly and in subjection. But along comes eagle number two, who represents what? Egypt. Egypt. And what does Egypt do? Nothing. Nothing. Pretty eagle. <laughs> but the grapevine develops a mind of its own. Judah decides that while it was doing well, it wanted to be greater. It didn't like this lowly willow vine status. And so in trying to get more, it throws away everything it had. Kind of reminds you of the... Uh, the dog that's uh, clutching to a piece of meat in its teeth that sees its own reflection in the water and grabs for the other piece of meat and loses everything. <laughs> you know, it, it, Judah never was satisfied. They wanted something better. So they, they turn to, to, they rebel and they turn to Egypt. You know, is it going to work? No, Judah managed one more time to politic themselves into another hole. <laughs> And, and there's a reason for that. Why is it that this plot to ally with Egypt did not succeed? Because he made a covenant and broke it. Well, why does it make any difference that he broke his covenant? Well, God's a part of every covenant. Absolutely. He swore by God to stay faithful to Nebuchadnezzar, and God's holding him to it. And when he took a took an oath in the name of God, he had a moral obligation to keep it. 
And when he didn't, when Zedekiah double-crossed Nebuchadnezzar and went back on his oath, then he shows that the name of God didn't mean anything to him. You know, that that was a, you know, a, a, an empty thing. And God wasn't going to put up with that since he broke his oath to remain faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. God holds him responsible and he's going to bring him down. I'm going to spread my net over him. He'll be caught in my snare, he says in verse 20. Uh, I'll bring him to Babylon and judge him. And they'll fall. Comments? Questions? It's interesting that even after after Babylon captivity, they still did not even return to the status of a lowly god. That's the truth. They they left all they even what they had they gave up to receive nothing. Pride is such a terrible thing. You know, we're never satisfied. We want something greater. We want to be more honored. We want to be, you know, higher position. And, you know, that's just, man, you need to be content to be willow trees. It's a whole lot better than it might be. And we certainly need to be faithful to our promises. I mean, you would not think God would really care about, you know, political treaties with other nations. That he, I mean, this is, you know how we are. You know, this is, this is uh, your, you know, this is not really your life. This is politics. You know, an international politics. I mean, nobody expects you to be faithful. God does. I mean, God intends for integrity and honesty to extend to everything we do. Not just because it's international politics that they're allowed to make an oath and then break it. Also, that, that repeating theme, you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Coming up at the end of 21, all of these things are going to happen. And that's going to be yet another layer of proof that I'm the one who's doing the talking. Especially all those false prophets. Good point. Is God going to punish Egypt? I don't think that's the point. Do you see that somewhere? Well, I'm trying to figure out what verse 17 means. He's saying that in 17 that Egypt is not going to help when the Babylonians make war against Judah. You see that? That's the problem, Egypt. You make a treaty with Egypt, you might as well be making the treaty with a stump. You know, Egypt never did anything. As Isaiah 30 called Egypt, yes. dragon do nothing. <laughs> Splintering reed or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what the Assyrian says. You know, it's you know, all you have managed to do is you know lacerate your hand. It doesn't support anything. Egypt was pretty, you know, beautiful eagle. Never, never bothers to leave home to help. Other thoughts and comments? Egypt was the mummy. Yeah. <laughs> I have about 22 to 24. This says the Lord God, I shall also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I shall pluck from the topmost of its young twigs 
a tender one, and I shall plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I shall plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. Alright. So, what's God going to do? He's going to do a little planting. Yes, he's going to take a sprig off the top of the cedar, and he's going to plant this where? On a high mountain. And what's going to happen with what he plants? Yeah, going to become a great tree in which the birds nest under it and nest in the shade of its branches and and all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord, you know, that brings down and, and raises up. And um, so God is going to make this tree just a tremendous tree. Really, God's action here is comparable to the eagle's action at the first part of uh, chapter 17. God is the truly great eagle. And he will provide the growth and security that neither Babylon nor Egypt could provide. So when he takes the top of the cedar and plants it, what's that referring to, really? Jesus. I think so. The Messiah. And how God's kingdom through Christ is worldwide. You know, God reversed every human expectation. When it looked like Israel was never destined to even be a lowly willow again. God takes the plant, the sprig, and he plants it on a mountain, and it becomes the greatest tree that's ever been. Even greater than Babylon? Absolutely. Yeah. Daniel yeah. 4, Babylon was cut down. Yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, the seal that the Babylon took off the topmost part of was Judah, or Israel, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then God takes a spray off the cedar. I think it's kind of maybe possible that we can see this cedar still is due to Israel. He's only taking a very little part of it. But when it grows, it becomes home to all, uh, to everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. it just goes back to what Paul said. I don't remember where, but to Jews first and then the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews are, I know, the, they, they come from the direct line. But even the birds are able to come in. Mm-hmm. I agree. Good point. This reminded me of the passage about the little seed that's planted and becomes a pink plant and everybody hangs out in it. Yes. It's about safe. The parable of the mustard seed. Yeah. Mark chapter 4. You gotta get your numbers right, man. You have the book right. You went to a week at camp and you forgot everything you knew. You have the book right. That's more that's better than normal. Maybe this is well, that brain damage we were talking about. <laughs> That's what... How long were you under? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I was only under for about three seconds at a time. Between that and the uh, trampoline uh, closing yeah. counter. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of... The trampoline? This is explaining the death of the brain cells. Oh, yeah. Brain cells don't die by taking a trampoline with your teeth. <laughs> I can feel painful by a little frazzle. <laughs> 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 They're prone to dying. They're dry. 